You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, I Am, examining the I Am statements of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is John 14, 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to worship with you all today in the house of God, also to open the word of God together. Uh, And you guys can turn to chapter 14 in the book of John, which is what we will be journeying through today. Um, As you do so, um, just a quick heads up, public service announcement. You guys have about five more hours and the summer's done. So uh, if you've been like me, it's just been going like this. It's crazy. We've been getting our family vacations in, and in the Norris clan, you know, we cram all of our eggs in one basket and make one vacation be, you know, have the pressure to be the greatest thing of all time, right? So uh, that's kind of the goal. That's what we go for. So we just got done from a long trek uh, up to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So that's where Emily grew up, and uh, it's a long way up there middle of nowhere, edge of civilization. And we made the trek. It was like an eight-day thing, gone forever, right? So the whole plan was we'd spend the first half with Emily's side of the family, and then the second half with my side of the family. Again, this is like the trip of the summer. Everything better go great. Uh, It better be fantastic. We're talking joy, talking food, talking memories, pictures with all the grandbabies. All the things are going to be fantastic. Well, um, everything's going good until we get to the morning when we're making the shift from family one to family two, my side. And I hear in the baby monitor, uh, my two-year-old Wesley vomiting all over the place. So I go upstairs and there he is, just the cute little teeny thing just launching. So I realize this is gonna turn a little differently than we thought uh, for the whole household had caught the stomach bug. So there had been multiple stomach bugs. So the whole plan, right, was to shift and the whole family. Instead, I am sitting on a couch watching the Mario movie for the third time with a barf bucket in one hand and a barfing kid in the other. So it did not go according to plan. In fact, it just completely didn't meet its expectations, right? Just came back pretty exhausted, still sick. All the goodness, I'm good now. So you guys are all fine. Um, I think that when we think about this, though, when we look at the beautiful things in life, the good things in life, true things in life, we're often left wanting after it's all said and done. Whether it's a vacation, whether it's a fantastic meal, whether it's a good time with friends, whether it's even a beautiful sunset, all those things have limits and we're left with some longing at the end of the day. I'm like, I wanted more of that. Like, 
what was that just brief like flash of like, this is the way things ought to be, especially on a vacation. I think we glimpse that really deeply. C.S. Lewis speaks about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. And he talks about whenever we get that echo, that, that, that glimpse of beauty in a beautiful painting or around really beautiful fellowship or amazing food, it's, it's a whisper, an echo of home. It's, it's home. It's, it's what it's supposed to be like. We're talking an eternal home. The true longing of every single person on the face of the earth, because they are made in the image of God, is that each and every one of us have this homesickness, this, this aching in our heart for being at home. And whether we realize what home truly is, which is with God or not, that aching is there. And life is spent trying to figure out how to alleviate that ache, right? And if we don't know Christ, we find plenty of ways to pursue home in different directions. Even when we do find Christ, we forget what true home ultimately looks like. Well, Jesus in John chapter 14 is speaking about our true home and how to get there. So the main idea this morning of this text is simply this, Jesus is the way home to God. Jesus is the way home to God. So we're going to unpack that truth together, but let's pray before we begin. Jesus, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, I pray that you would be made beautiful in this text, that the good news of the gospel would be declared from this, that uh, people would be experiencing an encounter with the divine, that saints would be edified, and those who don't know you yet would truly understand what it means to be saved. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's where we're going. In this text, Jesus puts us through, like, I I think we're going to see three different movements. The first is, we're going to see the disciples are in some distress, and Jesus is going to address this. And then secondly, we're going to see Jesus describes what home is like with the Father. And then finally, Jesus declares that he is the way home. Okay? So the distress, the description, and the declaration. Well, with the distress, it begins right away with this verse. Jesus says to the disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, if we look at the context here, they are quite troubled. Jesus has just spoken about his crucifixion in chapter 12, and then he's going away from them in chapter 13. So they're full of confusion and uncertainty, fear, anxiety, really unsure of what is transpiring. But Jesus is also not just aware of their present distress, but he's aware of their future distress that they'll be going through. For he's told them, but they don't fully get that he is about to be betrayed and arrested and beaten and hung up on a cross to die. And whatever anxiety and and distress and fear they're feeling now is nothing compared to the darkest day in history. It's going to bring a lot of emotional distress. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. But are you here today? finding your heart very troubled. Perhaps you came in, you've experienced some deep loss in your life. 
uncertain how anything is gonna be reconciled. And you find your heart shuddering with anxiety and grief. Or perhaps there's a future decision or a situation that is looming that you don't know what to do with and you're full with uncertainty and fear and your heart is troubled. Or you've been betrayed by someone who you love and you're uncertain what trust could ever look like again. Is your heart troubled today? I know all of us, we can hear this incredible truth. Take heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me, Jesus said. Believe in God and also believe in me. This is the antidote to an untroubled heart is to believe in God and believe in Jesus. So if you come in today with a troubled heart, here's Jesus' instructions. Believe and trust in me. That's the antidote. That's the relief, the balm for our troubled souls. And no, this is not some Christian hallmarky thing. Pastor Jarvis touched base on that last week. Jesus isn't Romans 28-ing your troubled heart. He's giving us concrete, real, actual, true, steadying to the turmoil that we may find ourselves in today. That's what he's promising for us in this text. And how he does so is by describing our true home. So that gets to the second point, right? So look with me in chapter 14, starting in verse two. In my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. Where I am, you may also be. Jesus describes his father's house, our true eternal home for those who have believed in Jesus. When we look at this biblical narrative, by the way, starting in the Old Testament, we see this constant desire for home. There's a true home that humanity was first set in in Genesis 1 and 2. That was in Eden with God, where Adam and Eve walked with God as friends. They were with him, fully dwelling, fully in relationship with him. And Genesis 3 showed up, and Adam and Eve wanted to have a different way. And so they chose a misdirection away from God, away from being home with him and sin entered the world. And it, it, it seems like all throughout the rest of this biblical narrative is God wooing his people to himself and them desiring to be with him, failing to do so, trying to be with him. It's this constant desire to dwell with God. God with his people is what it constantly is. Think of the tabernacle. This is God's house where he commanded the Israelites to set up this tent. Why? So that he could dwell with them. That was the whole purpose of it. But it was a very sacred and restricted place, right? So in Leviticus chapter 16, this is the Lord's instructions to Moses on how to interact in this tent, this tabernacle, specifically in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. He's given these instructions to the high priest, which was Aaron. So in verse two, it says, the Lord says to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he's gonna die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. I have a desire to dwell with these people, but you can't because I am holy and you're wretched. 
There's no chance for you to dwell with me. This access as well for them to have any, even a glimpse corporately of being in that presence. What happened when one person, the high priest, one time of year, the day of atonement, would be able to go into the Holy of Holies. That's it. This is very different than what Jesus is describing, isn't it? It's a totally different deal. Jesus is describing not a restricted access, but a full access. Not one teeny little room, but many rooms. And not one that's just restricted for one person, but one that actually is made purposefully up for you. Right? Okay, so um, if ever you've gone traveling and, and, and you've stayed at someone's home, um, my, my son Prince and I just did a, another long trek. Previously, uh, uh, before, rather, the South Dakota trip, we took a North Dakota trip. And if you want to talk about desolate, that's North Dakota. So we helped some family move, and we took a two-day trek from North Dakota to Des Moines, Iowa. Very long. Um, the final day we were there, after everyone's all moved in, uh, I, we stayed at a good friend of mine's house, Bruce and Diane Grotenheist. Good Dutch name. Uh, and they, they, they were so excited for us to be there but they weren't going to be there right away, okay? So there was a time, a little gap where we were showing up and they were going to be there, but, but we were there. And we walk into the house and Diane had printed out like a welcome letter. <laughs> Hi, Andy and Prince, we're so excited you're here. Like, ta-da-da, here, the fridge is loaded. Here's where your rooms are. Andy, you're upstairs. Prince, we gave you the whole basement. It's all for you, man. Uh, it, everything in this house is yours. You take it, anything you want, it's all there. The intentionality, right? The care, the, the purposefulness in this. I walk upstairs and there were my towels and there was my fan because I'm a high maintenance sleeper and it was going to be right by my head and I was going to sleep like a baby that night because Diane knew that and she set it all up for me. I want you to know that Jesus Christ has intentionally, purposefully, carefully set up your room for you in eternal dwelling with him forever. On purpose. Like he loves you that much. He delights in you being there that much. He said, I'm going up there. I'm going to prepare all this for you. I'm making, making it all good to go. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you there. And here's going to be the best part. I'm going to be there too. And you, according to Revelation 22, are going to see me face to face. Face to face. What a beautiful truth, right? We have an eternal home of our king who's gone before us to set it up for us. What balm for a troubled soul where even death itself can't have the last laugh if you have a home with Jesus. Now that is a not yet reality, right? That is, we have to cross the threshold of this life into the next to experience that. Jesus comes back and, and restores that. And, 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 and in the, the second coming and the resurrection, we will then see Jesus face to face physically, right? But I think what's beautiful about this is that this is not just a not yet reality. This is, uh, this is also an already reality for us. Because the Holy Spirit of God, because Jesus raised from the dead, when you believe in him, the Spirit dwells within you. That's Romans chapter 8. That the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, takes up residence within you, makes a home in you. 
So these promises of what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus, the joy, the peace, the love, the safety, they're like, I'm good. There's nothing else I need right now. I'm set. I'm with my true king. I'm good to go. Jesus is saying, it's not going to be with you physically yet. You can't see me face to face, but you can experience it spiritually with me. You can experience it emotionally with me. That joy is available now, sojourn. That love's available now, sojourn. That peace that surpasses all understanding is available now, sojourn. Because he's not just made a home up there for you in the by and by and the eternal glory. He's made a home in you today, now, for those who believe in Jesus. Boy, a balm for our troubled, troubled hearts, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. And I think we can find that when we believe that Jesus really has made this eternal home for us and made a way to have a home in us. So that's the description of home. And it's incredibly beautiful and powerful. But then we get to this question, and it's the same question that Thomas had asked. Because Jesus ends this section, right, in verse 4. Look at that. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, very logical Thomas, responds with, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Okay, layman's terms. You hadn't told us the location, dude. What you talking about? We know the way. You haven't said where you're going. It's like me saying, hey, let's go for coffee. See you in a bit. And I leave. <laughs> you didn't tell me where you're going, Andy. <laughs> like, I can't meet you with coffee. I don't know the way anywhere. You haven't told me where you're going. Makes sense, Thomas. We got you, bro. So this brings us to our third movement in the text. Jesus' declaration that he's the way home. So look at the text. You know where I'm going? No, we don't. So how can we know the way? Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This declaration is the meat of the entire text. This one verse is packed with so much theological significance. I want to I unpack three components of it. Okay, as we look at this declaration. The first one is this. The first like reality, the, the, the point that we need to understand about Jesus' declaration here. Jesus is making a divine declaration here. He's saying, I am. Okay, we're, we're going through the I am series. That's our, that's our cue right there. Jesus is saying he's God. Okay? So studies have shown, Barna um, has done some studies on this, that millennials specifically that uh, for those of the millennials in the room, over, I am too, over half of us believe that Jesus is either a really good teacher, like a good religious teacher, or we don't actually even know who he is. But the concept of him being God is actually pretty low on the totem pole. And even more specifically, almost two-thirds of us believe that Jesus sinned like a normal human being. So what that means is, according to this study, that Christianity is a way to live a decent life, follow some good truth principles. Jesus was a decent dude. He's a compelling guy. He's a, he's, he, he's, he has carved a decent way. He said some good truth things. He's a good guy to model your life out, off of, right? Well, as we see in the text, that is not what Jesus says about himself, Right? He's not saying that about himself. Jesus is saying, I'm not simply a guide showing you a path to follow. I am the way to God. 
He is the way home to God, to have access with the Father, to be in his presence. Unlike the Old Testament priest who had temporary access with conditions, Jesus has full access with no restrictions. He's the full access to God. Jesus is saying, I'm not simply a teacher of truth that you can understand. I am the truth of God. Full revelation of God in the text, the embodied truth of the divine. John 1.18 speaks to this. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God at the Father's side. He has revealed God to the world. You want to know what God is like? You want to know the truth of who God is? You want to know his character, his qualities, his works, his behaviors? Look at Jesus Christ. The truth of God wrapped in flesh. Jesus is saying, I'm not simply a model of godly living to emulate. I am the very life of God itself. A blessed life, an abundant life, an everlasting life, where flourishing and love and joy and peace coalesce in a person. No one can make these bold truth claims, saying I'm the way, I'm the truth and the life, without being God himself. And Jesus is claiming to be divine. In verse 7, that's specifically what he says. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You want to see what God looks like, Thomas? Look at me. He's claiming to be God. The way, the truth, and the life. His answer to Thomas is, I'm who you're looking for. Okay? So the first point about his declaration is this is a divine declaration. He's saying, I'm God, everybody. Well, the implications of that are pretty intense then. So while this is a divine declaration, second point, this is a challenging declaration, right? This is an exclusive claim to salvation to be with God. The most explicit claim we're going to see in the whole Bible, where Jesus is bluntly saying, there is no other way to get to God except through me. No other way. There's one way to God. There's one truth. There's one life. It's Jesus. This is deeply antithetical, isn't it? To our entire cultural moment that we're in. I mean, y'all are feeling the same trouble in of our hearts at the same time as we think about what does this mean? If you tweet that right now, you'll get blown up. One of our highest values in society today is tolerance, Right? Letting people live their truth, live their idea of the good life, cultivate their own beauty. The idea that there is an objective, universal, absolute truth is pushed against extremely heavily. The call from our culture is to respect other people's beliefs, right? Let them do them. So this is us living in a world of relativism, that's kind of the bigger term, right? Everything is relative. Everything's relative. Our culture believes there actually is no universal truth, especially, especially when it comes to religious ideas and spirituality, right? Think of the coexist bumper sticker. That'd be one. I think another classic analogy we often hear um, and that, that argues for religious relativism is the story of the five blind men and the elephants. Some of you have heard this before. So the story, the metaphor goes this way. Uh, there's five blind men, and they come up to an object, and they start 
feeling around, and one says, it's a, it feels, feels a trunk. He doesn't know what it is, but he said, this is a snake. And he goes up to the elephant's leg, and he says, this is a, this is a tree trunk. And he goes up to the elephant's back and says, it's a wall. Or the ear, this is a big fan, right? The tail, it's a rope. And essentially, it's, this, this metaphor is just saying this. Uh, everybody is grasping a glimpse of the truth, but nobody is able to fully grasp the whole truth. So therefore, we need to be tolerant of other people's views because actually they're contributing to sort of the marketplace of religious ideas that are all eventually going to get to the same conclusion one day. But no one can fully understand the whole concept in and of itself. Okay? That right there is how we... In, is how our culture like, thinks about religion and faith and spirituality. There is no absolute truth claims. No one could fully know. So how do we as Christians grapple with this? I know for me, I got like chewed up and spit out, probably while I was in seminary, on a plane ride where some guy was arguing with me about rel- you know, relativism. Um, I was supposed to know all my answers and I didn't, so I, I got crushed. Uh, and it's okay if you don't know our answers. That's why really brilliant people are in the world. Like... Rebecca McLaughlin, okay? She wrote a book called uh, Confronting Christianity, and she argues very compellingly that the worldview of relativism is actually quite logically problematic, okay? Now, she gives a lot of reasons why. Uh, I'm just going to highlight three of them, which I find quite helpful. So the first, if the claim of relativism, meaning there's no universal truth, right? No one can say anything for certain, we can make no universal moral or historical claims, right? So if there's no absolute truth, we can't make the moral statement that men and women are equal. We can't make that claim if there's no absolute truth. We can't make the historical claim that the Holocaust happened or chattel slavery in America happened because everything is subjective. So all of our morality, even our history, is now just, you know, a subjective thought that people have about reality. That's deeply problematic if we're going to be a people that are passionate about goodness, justice, beauty, truth. So that's the first claim. The second thing that she highlights is the claim of relativism, there is no universal truth, contradicts itself, for it is a universal claim in and of itself, right? So return to the five blind men for a minute. Checking out the elephant. The only way to know that each man is seeing only a part of the element of the elephant is if you are aware of the whole elephant. Therefore, making the claim that the elephant is there, that's an absolute claim. It absolutely is present. That's why they're absolutely only seeing a part of it, right? So stating, I am absolutely certain that every religion can't have the absolute truth is an absolute truth statement. Contradictory, right? So then finally, McLaughlin highlights, while relativism seems to be humble, I think this is like really for us right now in the cultural moment. Because we think uh, tolerance and relativism is a really humble posture to take in front of people, right? So I think that's why it's virtue signaled often, uh, because it seems to be a humble stance. Well, McLaughlin argues that while it seems to be humble, it's actually quite arrogant because it doesn't take people's beliefs seriously, right? The majority of the world's main religions absolutely believe that they have the truth, okay? 
So if you look at him and say, well, you're just understanding the trunk, but I respect your view. That's extremely patronizing, you know? They're either right or they're wrong. They believe that. They're either right or they're wrong. It is what it is. So I love how McLaughlin lays this out because in my mind, like when we think about engaging in these conversations, my, my, my nervousness is like, dang, this is going to go south. They're going to be really offended. Things are going to go poorly. Like relationships over. Like I don't want to be a jerk. Like all, right? All that kind of stuff. So McLaughlin helped me in this. And here was the quote that she gave. It's often said that you should respect other people's beliefs, but that's wrong. <laughs> what's vital, just blunt, what's vital is that you respect other people because they're made in the image of God. So you better respect them. They have inherent dignity and worth and we affirm it, right? So you respect other people. Indeed, when examined more closely, attempting to persuade others to change their beliefs is actually a sign of respect. You are treating them as thinking agents with the ability to decide what they believe not just products of their cultural environment. We should not be offended when people challenge our beliefs. We should be flattered. Now that, if you're like me, is a very different posture. Makes me kind of feel like, oh, okay. I think I could. I, I do desire to affirm people's dignity. I do desire to respect the person. But boy, am I actually respecting them if I challenge their beliefs? Fascinating. Changes the game, doesn't it? But I want us to say this, while we, think, while we can think about how do we engage in these ideas in compelling ways and understand that it is logically sound for us to have absolute truth be something that we believe. It is logically sound. You can believe that and not be seen as an idiot or be seen as a jerk, right? But the consequences are real. Disagreeing about religious truths are real. Because remember what Jesus is talking about. He's making an exclusive claim. The only way to get to God is through Jesus. So these debates that you're having, if you have them, begin to have them, have eternal consequences. It's deeply challenging to our culture. It's deeply challenging to us. We're talking about life or death eternally. If the longing for every person is for home and they don't choose belief in Jesus, then they aren't getting home. They're not getting home. Rather, they remain dead in their sins under the wrath of God for eternity in hell. These consequences are real. And this statement, while this statement is true, that Jesus is the only way to God. It's important for us as we engage these things. It's a challenging thing. That, that is a challenging truth. Okay, so we've walked through these declarations, right? So Jesus' declaration here, it's a divine declaration. It's a challenging declaration. We're feeling it, aren't we? But I want us to remember this third point about this declaration. Remember the context. The first thing Jesus said here was, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Meaning, and the third point about his declaration, this is a comforting declaration. It's true, and it's also good and beautiful. Right? Here's how. Christianity is not like other religions 
that require you to make your way to God. All other religions do that. They require you to work your way up. You got to prove it. You got to do things. You got you, you to become a certain way or not think a certain way or whatever it may be. You, you need to work your way up. Prove that you can be at home with God. Climb your way up that ladder. Christianity is completely different because you don't make your way up to God. God made his way to you. That's the difference. It's flipped on its head completely. You and I are completely helpless to make our way to God. And while we were made for home, Genesis 3 said we did not choose the pathway to home. Instead, we chose the other way. So Jesus Christ made a way when there was no way to redeem you and me and bring us home forever with God. And the way in which he did that, by the way, was the cross. Saying, I will take their alienation I will take their sin. I will take their betrayal. I will take their idolatry upon myself and be tossed out of home so that they can be made way and have access at home with me and the Father. That's the pathway. That is beautiful and good news. Beautiful and good news. This home is accessible to you, by the way, for the first time. If you believe in Jesus, that's it. He's the way to God. He's the truth of God. He's the life of God. The way to be with the Father is simply and profoundly and most importantly through Jesus. But this is also available to us every single day, being at home with Jesus when we believe in him, when we trust in him, when our hearts are troubled and we believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. We believe that he made a way for us. We believe that we have an eternal destination. We believe that he's made his home within us through his spirit, that we're never alone, that he hasn't abandoned us, that he's filled us with the, the fruits of the spirit to cultivate truth, goodness, and beauty wherever we go. That's the access that he's given us. So to wrap up and in conclusion, I wanna to talk to First, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians in the room today. I think the call for us is to receive the challenge from this text. Receive the challenge. I love this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King in his book, Strength to Love. And here's what he said. What the world so desperately needs are tough-minded, tender-hearted Christians. Men and women who can think critically and live compassionately. These are the type of people that God will use to change the world. I love this. Tough-minded Christians. Remember that this is true. Remember that it is logical for you to claim an absolute truth in this. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God manifested in a person, Jesus Christ. The way to salvation is through him. Don't be ashamed of that. Disagree with people's worldviews while at the same time respecting them as a person made in the image of God. Remembering that they're longing for home, but you know the way to home. That's through Jesus. So while you're tough-minded, you're also called to be tender-hearted. We have to be both because like when a, a tough-minded Christian is saying, I'm not going to waver back and forth on what is true in this truth claim, but I'm affirming you as a person 
and I'm tender towards you and I have compassion towards you and I love you. And, and, and I'm not just hitting the truth hammer over and over again. I'm also hitting some goodness. I'm hitting some beauty. I'm talking about how caught up I am in the goodness and beauty of God. Psalm 27, I want to gaze on his beauty wherever I go. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to seek your good and your beauty. I'm wanting to make sure that you're pursuing a flourishing life. When we are both tough-minded and tender-hearted, man, the world won't really know what to do with us, to be honest. So I think that's our call for the challenge. But I think so many of us today too need to receive the comfort from this text. Jesus has prepared a home for you in glory. And Jesus has made his home in you through his spirit. That longing for home, even though those those vacations just don't even come close to what they promise to be, Jesus will always fulfill the promise of who he is to you. You're never gonna be disappointed when you find your home in Jesus. And that is a balm for our troubled souls. So that's to my brothers and sisters in Christ. For those of you today who are here and you don't claim Christ, you're still trying to figure it out. You're skeptical of these things. You've been hurt before perhaps. You're not sure if if God is real or, or he's worth following. You're not claiming Christ. Well, if you find yourself challenged by the text today, I believe the Spirit is perhaps speaking to you. And I'd invite you to join one of our pastors or leaders in the Connect Room after this service and process these things. I promise you that while maybe we'll be landing tough-mindedly on these truths because we believe it, we will be compassionate and tender-hearted and make room for doubt, for questions, for struggles. Jesus can handle that. He's good. He's on the throne. This is a safe place to ask questions. So we can do so in the connection with you. But I also want to invite you to receive the comfort that is available to you. You came here and your heart is troubled and you ache for home. Hear me today. The way home is through Jesus. He is who you are looking for. Your heart no longer needs to be troubled because he is saying, come to me, you who are weary and troubled. I want to give you rest for your soul. I want to forgive that guilt and that shame and, that, and, 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 and I want to calm the fears that you're experiencing because I came for you. I made a way to you so that you can have a way to be with me. Amen. Jesus is the way home. Believe in that today, brothers and sisters. And let our hearts no longer be troubled. Amen. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.